Okay, we're going we're gonna to pick up in Acts chapter 1. We've been going through the book of Acts. And uh, if you need a Bible, Micah is not only going to lead us in worship, but he's going to pass out Bibles too. He, he's doing it all tonight. Uh, and, and while you're in Acts chapter 1, uh, I want you to keep your place. Remember, <clears throat> well, let's, let's, let's see a refresher. Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke, good. All right, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Grant, good. See, you guys are doing great. You're doing great. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Who's the most prolific writer of the New Testament? Written more... Luke. Luke. Everyone say with me, Luke. You can do it this way if you want. Luke. Okay. He wrote... The, the gospel according to Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. More volume as far as words than the apostle Paul. Paul had more epistles, letters, but Luke had more volume. Now, who did Luke write the book of Luke to and the book of Acts to? Theophilus. And who is Theophilus? Possibly a senator in Rome. We know the most excellent. It's a term that's used for a senatorial position for the higher aspects, right? So he writes it to Theophilus. Does anyone know what Theophilus means? Lover of God. So it's really kind of cool because it means anyone who loves God, he's writing to you. I like that. Now at the conclusion of, of Luke, the, uh, the gospel according to Luke, it, it, the, these were the last words of Jesus before he was taken up. It starts in verse 45. It says, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Verse 46, and he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Remember, we covered the three prepositions of, of the Holy Spirit's interaction in, in the lives of men on the earth. Uh, in, with, and upon, right? You got that? Remember we had the pitcher of water or we put, okay. Uh, Where were we? Uh, Thus it is written, and then we go to verse 48. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And as he led them out as far as Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. I say that because Now we come to the book we're studying. We haven't gotten out of chapter one. um, And we we get to verse nine tonight. Uh, But I'm going to start in verse one and then uh, put it into context and then we'll pick up at verse nine. Acts chapter one, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, and we just read that in Luke 24, which he said, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy spirit. Not many days from now. 
Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive dunamos, dynamic power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be, not you shall witness, it says you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So remember that he's going to make, it, we're going to be witnesses. It's, it's not what we do, it's who we are. And, and what is a witness? Someone who testifies of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, preaches remission of sins and, re, and repentance. Right? And you have to be an eyewitness to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And as we learned on Sunday, how are we witnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Uh, Paul says in Galatians, I, meaning Rob McCoy, and you can fill in your name, have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So we die to ourselves and live to Christ. Okay? That's where the power comes from. Now, verse 9. Here we go. Now, when Jesus had spoken these things while they watched, here we go again, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Tonight we're going to take a look at what they call the second advent, the second coming of Christ. And we're going to take a look at that. But let me pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, I ask that you would guide us tonight through this passage. And Lord, we thank you that, Holy Spirit, you say you lead us into all truth. And as we open your word, we ask that you'd encourage us. We pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you'd bless us. Lord, I, I think of the idea that your, your word is true. We hold that and we, we stand by that. And, and because I would think even in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that, that they took it literally in regards to prophecy that even um, the, the rulers in Jesus' day knew that the Christ child would be, would be born in Bethlehem. They knew these things. And the prophets even declared it. And they took your word literally. So Lord, so should we. And Lord, when the literal sense makes good sense we don't seek another sense or we'll just end up with nonsense so god bless us we pray in your name amen the reason why i i, I point out this idea of a literal sense uh taking the scriptures literally micah 5 2 um herod was trying to figure out wh- where's jesus How, is he the messiah why is all this hullabaloo the prophets come and say yes it's true it's prophesied in micah they took the pro- prophecies literally um, and nowadays we find in the church that one of the, the laughing stocks of the church today, uh, and, and, and this is what we find uh, in the epistles, that, that there'll be scoffers, they're going to mock this idea of, of what we consider the second coming of Christ. Uh, we're, we're stupid to believe it. We've been waiting for Christ for over 2,000 years. He's not coming. Um, and, and, and the longer, you know, we seem to be waiting for his return and, and a thousand years is but a day to the Lord and a, and a day is but a thousand years. It's to, to God, there is no time. He's eternal for us. It seems like forever. And the culture will start to decry that. And, and this is where we see the end times and his preparation of his return where finally they just, it's, you make sport of, of Christendom. And uh, we're watching as in the 1040 window in the Arab world, Christians are sport right now. Um, wholesale massacre. Um, we are in a what they call a postmodern uh, culture in America, where the church is declining. Uh, read today, eight, eight Methodist churches closed in Alabama. 
Uh, churches are closing left and right. Uh, there's a, a decline in a fervency. It's fascinating that the churches that are growing in America are the ones that, what they call expositional, where they teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because you start to have a grounding and an understanding, and you're able to give a reason for your faith. Um, instead of making it high entertainment value and lights and bells and whistles and you're drawn to it and and that's what you're getting every Sunday, it may be entertaining but there's no foundation built. As we grind through, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book of the studies of the scripture, it gives us a strength of our faith and we, we tend to endure whatever trials come after us because the foundation is strong. So those churches are growing, but all the uh, denominational churches in America that tend to be moved by the culture and, and change their ways to kind of fit the culture. Not that, you know, we don't change. I mean, it would have been unheard of, you know, 50 years ago, or uh, let me correct that, maybe 60 years ago to have syncopated rhythms in a church, uh, an electric guitar that, that's just not happening, a pastor not wearing a suit, um, flip-flops for that matter what in the world this is so in the, in those sense in, in that sense we're we're culturally relevant i guess but the truth that we teach isn't compromised to fit the culture okay it, clothes are irrelevant in, re, in relation to the culture you wear what you wear and the scriptures point out that all things are permissible not all things are profitable so we're watching here as um, Jesus is declaring and, and the angels say that he's going to come back again. And this is what we see in, um, in, in the passage of scripture we're studying this evening. That in verse 9, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he went up and behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Uh, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So if you go through the church fathers, whether it's Clement or Trajan or Polycarp, uh, the early fathers, Irenaeus, all of these guys, they believed in the second advent, the second coming of Christ. Uh, it has been a, a foundational aspect of the church for centuries and, and this idea that he's coming back again. Every one of the New Testament writers, including Paul, including Jude, including James, all point out this second coming. Paul wrote in Philippians, he said, in relation to the second coming of Christ, brethren, join in following my example and note, and this is Philippians chapter three, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now here's where he says, he says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. See, at this point when Christ appears, he's appeared a number of times in this glorified body and this is stuff that trips people out and rightfully so. I mean, it's supernatural. He walks, he walks through walls. You're like, okay, wow. And he's appearing to people. And, and it's almost in this season of time after his resurrection and his return and he's appearing and the Holy Spirit falls in Pentecost and Acts chapter 1 it's almost like he, Jesus is here. Well, he's over here and he's appearing. He doesn't appear to non-believers. He only comes and believes to, uh, appears to those who've already trusted. He didn't have anything to prove. And he said what he was going to do and he did what he said he was going to do. And that was it. 
So it's almost like, well, I saw him over here and somebody's testifying, I saw him here and he appeared to 500 there and all these things are happening. At this point, it's not like Jesus, you know, all of a sudden departs from them, like on the road to Emmaus when he's walking with the two men and the scriptures are open, they realize it and look and he's gone. This isn't what Jesus is doing. He gives them a command that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and he declares this. And then he walks out with them just like he did in Bethany. And it's almost like a cloud surrounds around him. This is the context of the Greek. And it, and it lifts them up and they're just gazing, watching until their eyes can no longer see it, whatever it was. And, and as they're looking up, then the angels say, why are you gazing into heaven? The same way he left, he's going to come. And, and immediately this is established and you find all the early church fathers hold to this, but it, it takes just maybe 50 years and the church is struggling again. And this is what's going to happen in culture. You're going to say, that's not believable. We need to be relevant. It's hard to, to share this. And, and you want to abandon the difficult things to teach. I get that. I get that. I would, I would, I would love to abandon the difficult things to teach, but you teach the whole counsel of God's word. And, and it's, you don't, if it's there, you teach it. It's there for a reason. And if you're going to take it piecemeal and you're only going to t- teach the verses you like, you don't have an understanding of the entirety of the council. And you'll struggle. And that's why churches that, you know, focus mainly topically and move away from the scriptures, you never, it, imagine, imagine if you read War and Peace as churches teach the Bible topically. So, so today, we're going to read War and Peace, and we're going to do it this way. We're going to read four sentences from page 11, and then we're going to read three sentences from page 316, and then we're going to read eight sentences from page... How long will it take you to grasp War and Peace? Forever. You're like, what a stupid story. I don't... Now, granted, God's Word doesn't return void. It's effective when you can read a passage here and a passage there. I, I, it's living, it's breathing, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. But to read it in its context, what each, what each book meant, who it was written to, what was the point of the writing, understanding observation, interpretation, application, putting, putting all of these tools into application so that you can glean and have this understanding of the entirety of the scriptures is powerful. Well, the church is straight from that. It was, it was a matter of 50 years. And, and here, I'll give you an example we get into we get into revelations 2 and 3 and and immediately john the apostle still living and he's talking about churches that have strayed from the faith they they've already abandoned this this uh, theology they've abandoned these things and and god's calling them for it jude jude is writing and his book is only one chapter and he's, he's writing and he, he says, beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. He wanted to share about the common salvation of the church. He says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So the New Testament is still being written and the church is struggling with what we just read in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, that there's going to be an advent, a second coming of Christ. And, and they want to abandon that. Now there's a, there's a reason when you don't read the entirety of the scripture and you, you don't hold it all into context. And the problem with it is this. Let's say that, that I have a pet peeve in my, my life 
that, that um, I, I hold this dear and I am going to develop my teaching and, and the scriptures around what I want. And I'll formulate an entire theology around that. That's dangerous. W- one of the things you find in churches is that it's always about money. I, I can guarantee if you sat in a church where you've got the, the thermometer, you know, and the more money you give, the higher it goes, and it's got plaques everywhere from donations, and you have building drives and fund drives, and I can guarantee you the members of that congregation know every tithing verse in the Bible by memory. Because that's all they hear every Sunday. It's a sermon about money. If you go through the entirety of the scripture, you start to have that foundation. And, and so, as Jude was pointing out, they had abandoned the sound teaching for their pet doctrines. And their God, in a sense, was their belly, as, as we've read in the, in the passages. And so, the Lord declares to us that he is coming again. And, and, and the angels declare that he's coming again in verse 9. Uh, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The purpose of being mindful of a second advent, a second coming. It's hard for us to fathom, but we'll get there. But for the early church, 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. Remember? Drugged behind a chariot, crucified upside down, beheaded, skinned alive, and then crucified. Impaled on a stake. We, we go through Fox's Book of Martyrs, we see all that. In the midst of that misery, what were they holding on to? They were holding on to the hope, this hope of heaven. That they had this eternal mindset, they had this, this idea. Now, what happens with that, that hope? For anyone who, who wants to embrace this world as all there is, and, and wants to remove this idea that we're accountable to a God, Remove this idea that we, as Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said, have a God-shaped void in our heart. And, and we live with guilt, and we live with condemnation. And we say, well, that's manufactured by the church. We just have to remove all of that. Okay, so take it all out. Follow this progressive idea where government is the God and make that happen. And there's no accountability that, you know, there's no absolutes. There's no God remove every vestige, don't teach, just remove it. I marvel at, at how Christianity is, is declared, even by the President of the United States, to be responsible for the greatest atrocities in history. Salem witch trials, awful. You know who stopped it? Historically speaking, Christian pastors who had sound teaching. Oh, what about the Inquisition? Awful. Absolutely awful. When the church gets the sword, we're always in trouble. God never intended the church to have the sword, meaning 
the government. We're not seeking a theocracy. That's what's so fascinating about our founding fathers. They understood it wasn't a theocracy. They understood accountability before God, but a government that was designed as representative. Fascinating. And a checks and balance because they knew the condition of man and they had to be held accountable. But we look at the inquisitions. 100,000 people died. That's, that's awful. 100,000 too many. Bad. Crusades. 170,000. How many people have died on the face of the earth from governments that have removed God? Let's go through Russia, communist Russia, China, Cambodia, Germany. How many? Billions. Billions. Because there's no value. Those who are in power have authority. The elite rule, the, the subclass. I've achieved this. You're, just, you're, you're, you're the stupid masses, and I deserve this. People die. But when all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, all of a sudden that changes everything. And the only way to, if you want, if you want to oppress mankind and you want them to serve you, you've got to take away any notion that they have any inalienable rights. You've got to remove that. Where do you start? You gotta you gotta start in the churches. This is the most ridiculous gathering imaginable. You people are stupid that you would believe in a God. Well, what are you doing on a Wednesday night? You could be home watching some amazingly entertaining show. And 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 just zone out. You could be on the internet. You probably are right now. I see you looking at your phone. <laughs> What are you doing here? You're reading a book that is so outdated. What is your problem? How could you be so stupid? And then you get the culture to decry you and, and to push you into these walls and take away any, any type of cultural relevancy that you would even try to affect the world around you that your opinion even matters. You'll go to jail if you open your stupid mouth. And I look at this and I think, I'm 50. 10 years ago, I could have never fathomed this. What's gonna be in another 10 years? I look at my grandson, I look at my kids. I'm, 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 I'm blown away by it. And... The only thing that gives you strength, the only thing that gives you power, the only thing that can lift you out of the malaise is you gotta have a heavenly perspective. Because you're not gonna get the perspective from those around you. And you better know what you believe and know why you believe what you believe because nobody's gonna give you the time of day. And if you're not standing on a firm foundation, everything's gonna crumble. You know, the, the Christians are like, uh, the term's been abused now, and I don't mean in any political sense, but Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what's in them until you put them in hot water. You see what comes out. A faith not tested isn't a faith worth having. So when Christ declares 
2,000 years ago, and the angels declare that he's coming again on a second advent. Uh, each, each of the writers, we see Hebrews, we, we think it might have been the Apostle Paul. By the way, if the Apostle Paul did write the book of Hebrews, he would have written more than Luke, but we don't know that he did that. So, But he writes, uh, the author writes, and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Second uh, Timothy, Paul writes this at the end, and it's his valedictorian speech. And he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. This is his last, he's, he's going to be dead within months, so he'll be beheaded. He says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all to all who have loved his appearing. This has to be on the forefront of your mind, otherwise your faith will fade. James writes, James is the brother of Jesus, his half-brother. He says in chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and later rain, or latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You say, well, that's all New Testament. Let's go to the very first book of the Bible ever written. What is the book? No, Job. See, you're going to learn these things as you spend time here. Job, it's the oldest book of the Bible. It predates Genesis. I didn't mean to trick you, but I got tricked, so I had to do it to you too. I failed that one also. And it really helps you learn. Job 19, oldest book. Job writes... Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. Kink, kink. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another how my heart yearns within me. This same mindset of God's appearing, God's return, God's establishing his kingdom on the earth goes all the way into the Old Testament. Micah chapter 4, the Lord's reign in Zion. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord, Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways. And this is this idea of a golden age. Every culture has it, that everything's going to be made right. You know, injustice will be destroyed. And, and what's fascinating about this is... Uh, what I'm about to read to you is inscribed on the walls at the UN. It's one of the only scriptures that you're going to find on the walls in the United Nations. It's out of Micah chapter 4. He says, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. This is a, a communist uh, misinterpretation of the text and their spears into pruning hooks nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken for all people walk each in the name of his God but we will walk in the name of our Lord God forever and ever and so it's this idea of the coming of the king Isaiah 11 this one's quoted endless times about this golden age this 
And, and you can find it in the Greek culture. You can find it in, in the Mesopotamian cultures. You can find it in every culture in the world. Isaiah 11, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. I've seen that at the zoo where the leopard lies down with the young goat, but he's eating it. <laughs> the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And as a little child it shall lead them. You're going to put your child in a, you know, with a leopard and a lion? No. But here you can see that it's almost like creation is restored and there's a peace. Even animals aren't vicious. The cow and the bear shall graze. Bears don't graze. Right? Anyone? They, pour, they forage, but they don't graze, meaning eat the grass. Their young, their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. That, that to me is a bummer. I mean, all the animals, all the animals right now that are currently herbivores that, that eat grass and the like, really fat. Leopards, meat eaters, fit, thin, trim. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? Okay, all right, I was just pointing that out. And you're going, well, it obviously doesn't apply to you. True. Uh, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What does that mean? That means that the creator in a fallen world, do you remember when Dr. Lumala was here and he talked about the fruit in the Garden of Eden and his, his theory was that when it was opened, whatever it was, whether it was an apple or I personally think it was probably like a loquat or something or something I can't even stand, but actually probably really delicious, I don't know. But as soon as he opened it, or excuse me, Eve opened it and took a bite and Adam took a bite, everything that was in there was destructive. Every disease was there. Every, it just all of a sudden just starts to take hold. And you, and you watch as people decry the length that man lived in the, in the Old Testament. Well, let's, let's take a look at the law of entropy where everything winds down. So if death enters, then destruction begins. But if there's a solid basis, it takes time for a nation to crumble if it has foundations. So America's taking time to crumble. It's this... Titler's cycle. Titler was the Scottish historian. He said that there's a, a 200 year cycle of, you know, you come out of bondage into liberty, liberty into abundance, abundance into apathy, apathy into dependence, dependence into bondage. And it's a cycle. And currently, you know, more than 50% of Americans are on some sort of government assistance. And so we're getting into this dependency stage and then we'll be in bondage because the government will then be able to dictate because they're the ones who are writing the checks and they're they're going to have that. And, and this is a cycle of any Democrat or, or a democratic process that it goes through these cycles. Well, Titler pointed this out and he says a nation crumbles and we even look at Rome and it, and it, they had no external enemies. It imploded from within. And so we look at America and, and though it had great foundations, uh, uh, 239 years under the same birth certificate, while every other nation on the face of the earth has gone through multiple changes of government, we've still been under you know, the, the Declaration of Independence, July 4, 1776. And we see this, and, and we, we've taken on, you know, two Axis powers in World War II, brought them to their knees, established representative forms of government in both, uh, became a superpower, greatest wealth uh, ever generated in the history of any nation on the face of the earth, uh, industrial revolution, all the things we've experienced, uh, unprecedented freedoms of its citizenry, 
And now we're at a stage where we're losing these and, and, and prisons are starting to get full and, and crime is out of control and cities are beginning to riot and government's getting larger. And the larger the government, the smaller the citizen. And a government that's big enough to give you everything you want is enough, big enough to take away everything you have. And uh, we're, we're seeing about the spying and all and phone numbers and there's no, there's no privacy. The Fourth Amendment's being destroyed. And we're looking at this because as the culture begins to decline, that's the same thing that you see in the Garden of Eden. There was strength, but it took time for it. So maybe they were living 900 years, but the more that the disease starts to manifest itself and take root in different aspects of the strength of, of this earth, all of a sudden man's longevity begins to shrink. And God just sets, sets it at you know three score and 10 or four score and 10. And that's where it's set. And, and to get over 120, I mean, you're stretching it. And, and every year we're talking about the oldest person on the face of the earth. Well, in this frame, we don't get much past 120. A couple folks, and they're living older, but they still just can't break that 120 barrier. But now Silicon Valley's figured out how to do it. They take your consciousness and they transfer it into the internet, and you live forever. <laughs> Anyone see um, Machina? It, don't. It's a R-rated. What were you, what, Mark, what were you watching that for? No, I'm kidding. I saw it too. I'm <laughs> just messing with you. Some of you are going, oh, Pastor saw an R-rated movie? I, I, yeah, I did. Well, okay, good. Uh, <laughs> I'm not promoting evil. I want to understand the culture. And typically my kids, Dad, can I go see that? I'm going to go see it first. I have the, I, I'm prepared to wade through it. I know how to wear boots when I walk through the manure. But in this movie, it's this transference of, of the human intellect into a robot. But it has no soul. And it kills its creator. And just goes out to kill and to dominate the earth. God creates life. God creates life. We may be able to transfer memories. We may be able to transfer thoughts. We may be able to transfer what we consider the consciousness and goes into some sort of a machine. You want to talk about hell? Trapped in a machine for the entirety of your life? It, and if that's the future, and look at, look at the movies now. Everything's generated towards that. So the culture is dictating this destruction and kind of preparing us for it. But you, you idiots believe that there's a hope. What is your problem? You know I'm kidding, by the way, I hope. <laughs> yes, we do. And not only do, do, do our scriptures that we hold dear declare that, but so does the God that we serve. And our, our hearts long, I mean, we're, we're citizens of heaven. We're just passing through. If you travel over to Europe, you, you don't bring all of your possessions from your house and go into the hotel room and start hanging up pictures. No, you travel light. This is not my home. I'm in a hotel. I can't wait to get back with my family. And if, and if your whole thing is to amass wealth and put stuff in, you came in buck naked and you're leaving buck naked. The only thing going to heaven is people. The Bible says, store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy. Thieves will not break in and steal. You know, it's like, it's like Schindler. 
this pen is five people. This, this car was 17 people. Quit being excited about dirt. Have a love for people. I, I have to tell you, win or lose, I love running for office somewhat. <laughs> because the privilege to meet people. They're not enemies. They're opportunities to, to get acquainted. To have your horizon broadened. To have your, your faith tested. It's not like having your faith tested. When somebody's just really hard to love. And you just keep persevering. And they know what buttons to push. And they write things about you. And you just disconnect the button and go smile and give them a hug and mean it. There's just something special about that. There's nothing you can do to me. Scripturally speaking, Christians perceive themselves to be dead to themselves and alive to Christ. So as we said often, can you, can you irritate a dead man? Can you insult a dead man? Hello? Are you dead? I'm, I'm... <laughs> you can't. You can't. And, and if you're dead and Christ is alive, this, again, is the picture. Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul declares it, but it began with what we're reading tonight out of Acts chapter 1. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. We already know the power of his resurrection. We know that that power has come upon us. Acts 1.8, we're going to see this Pentecost picture. They see Christ, they're moved by him. The next thing we're going to see in, in Acts chapter 1 is they begin to gather together and they pray. You know what prayer is? Prayer is our declaration of dependence upon God. You know how stupid prayer looks to the world? You're talking to a God that they perceive not to be there. And you actually say in Jesus' name. It's a divisive name doesn't bring peace, but a sword. It's like, you can say, you know, I, I believe in God. Use the word Jesus. It's just, and in some cases, rightfully so, because the folks who represent him have, have really screwed the name up. But you take time, and all of a sudden, you reflect the Lord. If you're dead and Christ lives, it really touches people. It really touches people. You're pleasant to be around. Less of us, more of Jesus. Just like John said, John the Baptist, he said, I must decrease, he must increase. Uh, John 3.10, I must decrease, he must increase. And so when we see in Acts chapter one, this declaration that he ascended, but before he did, he spoke these things while they watched. He was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he went up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now let me, let me put a practical application. Don't be so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. If you're just going to sit there and look up to heaven all day long, you work as though it depends on you and pray as though it depends on God. There's work to be done. These men rolled their sleeves up. They began to serve one another. You're going to see in the book of Acts in the early church, they're serving the widows. They're caring for folks. 
Christianity is not a checkout religion. It's not laziness. We should be this. We sh- Why do we have to have Kiwanis and Rotary? I'm a member of Kiwanis. Why do we have to have service organizations? They should, they should be a- obsolete because we have the church. But we don't do that. Why are there per- parachurch ministries? Because churches aren't doing what the parachurch ministries are doing. We have the privilege to, okay, we're looking up into heaven. We know where he went, where he is. We also know he's in us, with us, empowering us. But now the idea is he's coming back again. And, and he says, as the apostle Paul said, be prepared for his coming. Be diligent. Don't just be, don't, don't, when he returns, don't have him find you just, what? <laughs> I, I, well, I, I, well, I was in church. <sighs> this Wednesday, man, I was beat. <laughs> what have you been doing? Oh, I go to church all the time. That's great, but what are you doing? I don't know, what do you mean do? What you do, you do is under the Lord. What you do unto the least of these, you've done unto me. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, declaring the, 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 the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, remission of sins, repentance. Have you lived your life in such a way that you're dying every day and living to others? Are you serving? What do you, what do you, oh, uh, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not that weird. I don't do that Jesus thing. I mean, I like going to church because it's kind of, I feel better. The people are nicer. What? You're going to see in the book of Acts, it says that this, this handful of believers turn the world upside down. So the world's upside down already, and they turn it upside down. They've actually turned it right side up. It influences Western culture. We, we see a transformation of Western culture as a result of the scriptures. People say, well, then in the Western culture then brought Christianity to Africa. No, 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 they didn't. You, you look at the Ethiopian eunuch who was in charge of Candace's treasury. And Philip got him on the road, shared the Lord with him. He's reading out of Isaiah 53. They baptize him right there. He's taken away, and the guy goes back into Ethiopia. Ethiopia means Africa. He brought the gospel. That did. White men didn't bring the gospel to Africa. Africans brought the gospel to Africa. But, but everywhere it lands, it's a transformation of a culture. Fascinating. Who ended slavery? In Great Britain, who was responsible? William Wilberforce. Who, who did child labor laws in America? The church. Who, who, who started the ending of slavery in America? The abolitionist movement. The church. Just go down the list. Now, who's also responsible for awful things? The church when it's not doing anything. When the church sits in behind its walls and just whines about the destruction of the culture and they don't engage it. And it's an us-them mentality. And so, this is the beauty of this passage, that we have the motivation to realize that Christ is coming back. Don't be discouraged. I I close with this last thought. I I saw the first results come in. And I, it's a familiar spot for me. And, uh, you know, I, I looked down and I thought, my, my life has been a series of, I do fairly well, but I never quite get 
whatever the, the ring on the merry-go-round is. But I, I, com- I compete well. And this is even in swimming and everything else in my life. And, and the results come in, and I see it, and I'm like, oh, man, I am getting whooped by an 84-year-old man. I'm 50. And, and this guy walked 9,000 homes. Had I done that, I wouldn't have this pastor's tumor. And I'm looking at Ed, and I'm thinking, and this guy, he, he is, he's like fine wine. He improves with age. I mean, I know he had his struggles in his early years and he's got all the stuff that everybody was trying to decry, but the further down the line he gets, there's something sweet about him. I love sitting next to him. I just like the guy. I just like him. And and I'm thinking, I don't want to lose to you, but if I do, I'm okay with that. But I'm watching these returns and I'm, I, I walked into election night and I have to tell you, whether I won or I lost, it didn't matter. Because I never entered the race. I, I run in such a ways to win, but I never entered the race with an expectation from the Lord. I did it because I was told to. So I don't lose any sleep. I'm not burdened. I'm not angry. It, it, it is exhausting at times. It's ministerially minded. There's some days you don't want to do it. It's, it's like you're trapped in a groundhog's day, you know? But I, I also think, too, Lord, if I have the privilege to sit with the other four members of the council, I, 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 I want to get to know them and serve them and care about them. If I'm privileged enough to sit in the council, I want to have meetings and get to know folks in the community. What a great opportunity to serve. Yeah, Dan's been in 60 classes and he, he knows the planning commission. He's, he's probably got more knowledge of the inner workings than all of us. Although, I, 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 I don't know, I, I think Ed probably can compete with him. I just, Lord, whatever you want. But I love the process because you're coming back and I want my time here to count. And my question for you is, what are you doing to make your time count? Don't, don't just mark time and take up space because you're living on his earth, you're drinking his water, and you're eating his food, and you're living in the body he created. And he's going to give an accounting, or you're going to give an accounting, so am I, and we'll stand before him. And he is coming back. And, and, if, and if you buy into it that he isn't, and you get discouraged and you want to quit... I got news for you. Don't, don't waver in the middle. Go for it. Jump in and, and try to experience life apart from God like, like Solomon did. I mean, that guy went for it. I have to commend my daughter, Natasha. She went for it. And I looked at her and I said, Natasha, if you find anything better than Jesus out there, you got to come tell me. She says, Dad, I, I don't think there is, but I'm going to go for it. She went for it. Man, she gave it all she had. And she came back going, that is awful. And I, I want to be here, and I want everything that God wants from me. I said, all right, kiddo. But either, either you're, you're hot or you're cold, but don't be lukewarm. Quit occupying a seat that somebody else who could be fervent could be moving with, right? 
And I'm not saying I ask you to leave because faith comes from hearing and just sit around long enough, you'll, you'll get it. <laughs> but the idea is, let your heart be moved because I don't know how much longer you have. I don't know how much longer I have. But I got news for you. I am ready to meet him at any moment. And I'm excited about his soon return or my return to him. I don't know if I'm going to experience a corporate rapture or a personal one, meaning I'll be taken to be with him. Meaning when I die, I don't die. I fall asleep and awaken in his likeness. And the, the, the world can mock me. Oh, he's one of those. Uh, Joyce Brothers, the psychologist. I'll close with this. She, she got a call uh, and she, she would give counseling. She was a PhD or psychologist, I think. And Joyce Brothers was said, uh, the, the couple said, you know, my, my grandfather, uh, he believes in the second advent, the second return of Christ. He's talking about, you know, end times. He, and her comment was, he's delusional. And you need to find a doctor and he needs to be on medication. And I thought, this is one of the most, you know, brilliant in, in, in the, the world's mind. She's got columns in newspapers before she died. She, she was highly regarded and that's what she thinks of me. I'm delusional. And probably a lot of people out there do, and they still voted for me. <laughs> because this may be what I hold, but this is how I live. And the more people I meet, the more they're touched by that, even though they may not agree with this. They see, they see the application of this here. But if you don't have any of this and you're just here, what good are you? Praise God, I'm a, I'm a Bible-believing, born-again Christian. And you're going to hell. And the person's looking at you, you don't even know my name. I know, but I can tell by the clothes you're wearing. <laughs> what, what are you, why? Well, look at the book you're reading, and I bet you went to one of those bad movies. I saw you scanning the horizon. And I would look at that person, and I would say, if heaven's filled with people like you, I don't want to go. <laughs> but if this is what you believe and this is how you live, they're going to be drawn to that. Amen?